Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Hi, Hi. How are you doing? How are you? I am good. How are you? Much better. <laughs> I know. Look at you. No wheelchair. Yes, that is amazing. We first met Caitlin Barber last March. She was visiting Mount Sinai Center for Post-COVID Care. Barbara was back on her feet after long COVID had left her unable to walk. The story we told back then was one of hope and resilience. But there's more to the story of long-haul COVID, and in recent months, Caitlin has regressed. I ended up in a um, complete pot flare um, where my symptoms have exacerbated um, to the point where, you know, it's hard to walk again. Um, I have trouble um, just doing daily tasks at this point. A change in medication sent her into a downward spiral. I ended up going into a severe, severe depression and um, PTSD episode um, that lasted um, a few weeks. And it was really, it was the scariest moment of my life. This has left her wondering if she'll ever escape the grip of the illness. There's a huge question in my mind of, you know, will this be the rest of my life or not? Um, so tell me what um, what you're up to in terms of your activity level, your physical abilities now. Yeah, so um, my physical abilities are... This week on 880 In-Depth, the challenges of long COVID and the discoveries that have been made. Welcome to 880 In-Depth. I'm Michael Wallace. If you've ever wondered what a case of long COVID is like, someone who suffers the effects of the infection long after they first got sick, Caitlin Barber's case is textbook. And sadly, she is not alone. Studies show anywhere from 5 to 40% of infected patients will develop long COVID. The consensus figure is roughly 10%. Two and a half years after the pandemic started, there's still no definitive finding for what causes long COVID. Right now, I mean, there are a lot of theories. Uh, there are a lot of studies looking at different ways COVID can cause initial changes to your body during the initial infection. That's made it challenging to help patients feel better. We're trying different treatment algorithms to see whether one thing works better than the other. And then over time, refining what we do in order to think of solutions that will work for patients. Although doctors are making progress. They are feeling better and getting better as we help them manage their symptoms. Um, now, having said that, I mean, not everybody gets 100% better, unfortunately. A little later, we'll hear from the head of Mount Sinai's long COVID clinic. Think of us as a primary care practice, but for long-haul patients or for post-COVID patients. Um, our goal is to 
look at number one when they have symptoms is this due to covid and is this something new from covid or is this actually just a medical illness that they've had all along but let's start with caitlin barber she was first diagnosed with covid in march of 2020 after a long stretch of suffering and then significant progress she's been knocked back again barber is 29 lives in the catskills and is a former marathoner she reconnected with wcbs reporter peter haskell to chart her course Originally, it was a very mild case. Um, I had actually gone back to work in two weeks. However, um, I had three failed work attempts. Um, You know, rather than improving from the COVID, I was actually getting worse. Um, And every time I tried to go back to work, it failed. Um, So finally, you know, I ended up trying to see many, many doctors around the Hudson Valley. Um, Now, long COVID wasn't even known back then. You know, it wasn't even it wasn't even thought about like nobody knew, you know, really what it was. At this point, it was a two week virus. So, um, you know, I kind of um, wasn't believed for about six to eight months and was told to ride it out. Um, And in the meantime, I just kept um, getting more and more. disabled really um and um by september of 2020 i ended up full-time in a wheelchair um because i was diagnosed with um what is very common in long haulers and it's called dysautonomia and POTS. POTS stands for postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome um as well as many other you know neuropathy diagnosis and anxiety um, depression. Um, so when I ended up in the wheelchair from POTS, it, um, you know, that Mount Sinai actually, um, their long COVID center is how I started to improve. Um, so by in about six months in the wheelchair, I started to be able to stand and then walk by the springtime. Um, and I started, you know, I, I really, Mount Sinai interventions, I, I, really swear by and they're amazing and um so i was doing really well i went back to work um you know i I ended up getting a new job because this job that i have now um you can telecommute a couple days a week so it really helps my um, physical condition with the pots and and i can manage it a little more so i'm really lucky in that aspect but um So about a month ago, um, you know, like I said, I was doing really well. I was doing yoga. I was, I was able to walk up to a mile and a half, which is, um, huge for me. Um, and I was, you know, doing some light exercises, keeping up on my physical therapy. And what happened was I had a medication change, um, of the psychotropics that I was put on when I got sick. And I ended up going into a severe, severe depression and, um, PTSD episode um, that lasted um, a few weeks and it was really it was the scariest moment of my life um, you know of um, just being that depressed and all of these things going on and then from that I ended up in a um, complete pot flare um, where my symptoms have exacerbated um, to the point where you know it's hard to walk again um, I have trouble um, just doing daily tasks at this point. I can't. We actually um, started staying with my in-laws, and now we're going to be moving in. We have to give up our apartment um, because I I can't physically do it. So things have kind of taken a turn in the last few months. 
um, you know, I I do have an appointment with Mount Sinai coming up, but, you know, from what I understand, this is to be expected as, you know, recovery is not just a straight up diagonal line. It's there are many bumps in the road. So I'm trying to keep my spirits high, but um, physically and mentally, um, you know, the, the paths and the diagnoses that I was given um, post-COVID um, don't just go away. Um, they stay with you. And, you know, it's just I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm trying to manage the best I can. It sounds like it has to be terribly frustrating. Oh, it is so frustrating. You know, the, the thing is, um, I, I was doing really well, um, and I kind of felt like I was kind of in remission from this. You know, I was like, maybe I'm, maybe I'm kind of coming out of this. You know, I, I really felt I was doing really well. And, you know, just a slight change to your body um, is a trigger for the condition that I have. So... Um, now I'm kind of back to square one and working my way out of the hole. <laughs> we'll hear more from Barbara later about how she's coping with the illness, what she tells other long haulers, and why she's so forthcoming about it. But we'll turn now to Dr. Zhizhen Chen. He's director of the Center for Post-COVID Care at Mount Sinai. He thinks there could be 10 million Americans with long COVID. Think about that, 10 million long haulers in the U.S., They've seen 6,000 patients at their clinic, and there's still a waiting list. He tells our Peter Haskell about what they're seeing. Well, there are a lot of symptoms. Um, so patients would come in uh, most frequently, I think, with uh, fatigue, which is a very big uh, complaint that many people have after COVID. Um, another very common symptom is uh, some of the neurocognitive symptoms you may have heard of. So things like brain fog, a little bit of confusion, uh, difficulty with memory. And then shortness of breath is also another big symptom that we see with many of our patients. Do we have a better sense of what causes this? Um, Right now, I mean, there are a lot of theories. Uh, There are a lot of studies looking at different ways COVID can cause initial changes to your body during the initial infection that can then, you know, uh, theoretically lead to these symptoms down the road. But there's not something that's, I think... um, you know, 100% in regards to, you know, this is the main cause, and if we fix this, then we can, you know, solve this problem. We haven't gotten there yet. How much of a challenge is it to treat somebody if you're not certain about the cause? Well, it's very difficult, right? I mean, COVID itself is somewhat of a novel illness, a new illness to us, and these sequelae, these long-term effects are also very new. So what we do is we use what has been work, working in the past for other illnesses with similar symptoms and really try, trying to treat the symptoms. But at the same time, we're learning about the illness. Uh, we have a patient registry. We're enrolling patients to do studies. And we're trying different treatment algorithms to see whether one thing works better than the other. And then over time, refining what we do in order to think of solutions that will work for patients. His center has been working on this for a while now. What have you learned about treatments? What's effective, maybe what's not so effective? So I think effectiveness-wise, you know, it depends on the symptom. Um, I think for the fatigue, uh, we've developed a very good program uh, with our colleagues in rehab that helps patients slowly retrain their bodies to be able to do the activities they used to do in the past. And I think that's been working exceedingly well. We have colleagues in uh, neurology who are working on diagnosing the type of neurocognitive dysfunction that the patient has, 
and then over time helping the patients again use techniques to retrain their brains to do the tasks that they you know couldn't do um, and then also using different tools to kind of supplement uh, you know the deficits that they have um, same thing with pulmonary and uh, cardiology you know just working with the uh, specialists in those fields to look at the common problems they have and you know using techniques to you know, treat it techniques and medications how much progress do you think you've made i think we're just scratching the surface right now and even though it's se- it's been a long time i mean we've been open since may we've had COVID around uh, may of 2020 sorry and we've had COVID around since like the end of 2019 but the thing is i think our understanding of the virus is still very superficial because we we know a lot but we don't know enough and when i say we don't know enough i mean i want you know the end point would be to have no further infections and be able to treat all the symptoms and we're not even close to being there in fact we're having future surges due to you know different mutations of the virus i mean we're not at the point where we can control this yet now do we have some information yes of course we do but i think there's much much more to learn what is it going to take? Is it just time? Is it just these various research projects? H- how much, what is it going to take and how long is it going to take to figure this whole thing out? Well, to answer what it's going to take, I think resource is definitely one thing. I mean, you saw the, you must have seen the Biden administration and their initiative now to put money towards both COVID and also as a part of COVID, long COVID treatment and understanding. That's going to really help. Uh, the National Institute of Health is also starting a large project in order to study a big you know, number of patients. And the goal is to understand this illness. But that will take time. You have to uh, you know, set up the studies so that they're appropriately targeted at the right patients. And then you have to find those patients and study them. And then from there, generating data. This is all a process that can take months to years. And then, you know, so having the resource and then the time is going to help our understanding. In regards to how long it's going to take, that's a very difficult you know, question to answer because understanding is one thing, but then we also have to find, well, now that we understand it, how do we treat it? And then from there, how do the patients respond? Because sometimes you know, what you theorize as treatment may work on the theoretical level, but then when you apply it to patients, it may not work or we find something different. So it's unfortunate. You know, the time span it takes it may be more months to years in order to help everybody but i think it's going to be progressive meaning you're going to learn more and more every day every week every month so that there'll be new things coming along that will help patients gradually until we get to the final answer the symptoms are not just physical there's a mental health component stemming from the psychological trauma patients face in dealing with a chronic illness If you look at the world now, I mean, there's always stress around the world, right? But look at the new stressors caused by, number one, this pandemic, and then also all the other things happening around the country and around the world. Um, We don't speak about mental health enough, I think, even before all of this. And mental health resources are not as adequate or as abundant as we want it to be and or we need it to be. And I think not being able to provide the adequate care to the patients on this component can actually make physically the patients be worse because there is that link between the physical health and the mental health. So to short answer is that we don't have enough of it and it's very important and we need more. We spoke to patients way back 
that doctors didn't believe them. Doctors couldn't diagnose them. Doctors had no idea what they were talking about. I, is there kind of a, a set standard now that more doctors understand what this is and diagnose it to get the patients at least pointed in the right direction? Well, I think the problem is, you know, it, it's so new that it's not that, you know, uh, it's not that doctors don't believe. It's, it's very hard to actually learn about this, even on our level. I mean, we need to focus on gaining that knowledge and understanding. And then when we, we meaning like big medical centers, seeing a lot of these patients, when we're able to do that, we can disseminate that information. And we are doing that to, to the best of our capability. And when we are able to disseminate what we learn, then other doctors can pick up and learn and then also reach out to us and form conversations so that, you know, we form a baseline knowledge about what's happening to the patients. And to in, in that perspective, I mean, if I were a physician who saw a patient and all their testing is normal, I mean, my gut is to say, well, you're normal. But the problem is, I think what's lacking is we're not able to listen to the patients as well as we should. And that may be causing some of the barriers because what's happening is you're having a disease where conventional testing sometimes doesn't show anything wrong with the patient. But that's just one aspect of the illness, which is the test results. The other aspect is what does the patient actually feel, right? And, you know, you can argue if you look at different parts of the spectrum that maybe the patient's malingering. Maybe the patient is, you know, has secondary gain, you know, has some sort of malicious, uh, you know, reason behind the, the complaints that they have. But in, in, in my opinion, you need to listen to the patient because, you know, even if there's some portion of that that's real, meaning like all of those other secondary issues, I don't think it's very prevalent. I think it's a very small portion of patients that actually do that. I think there's actually something inherently different change about the patient that they are feeling different, they're having symptoms, and they're just looking for relief. I mean, for me personally, I mean, I'm still coughing weeks after having COVID. And the thing is, I haven't gotten better. And, you know, I, I hope that over time it'll get better. But, you know, I'm sure if, you know, I get testing right now, I'm not going to show any deficiencies on the conventional scanning and testing, uh, you know, that, that, that can be done. But I still have symptoms. You know, I'm curious, having been sick, does that give you any kind of new insight as to what patients are dealing with? Well, I think it just casts away the doubt. Because, you know, as a physician, we want to believe every patient that comes in. We should do that. That is our job to do that, right? That's why we're here. We're here to take care of patients who are ill. And <clears throat> even then, you know, sometimes you wonder, you know, in the back of your mind, you know, is this you know, real enough, and is this a problem? And, you know, the reason we do all of this is because we want to believe that, you know, we're helping patients when they come in to see us. And, you know, being through this myself, I, I think, you know, it, it it casts away this doubt that I even feel, you know, in those moments where we're wondering, <coughs> you know, if this is all just something that's, uh, how do you say, it, it's something that's like, um, you know, that, that we're making too much out of it. And I don't think that's the case. I think this is very real. There are patients who are in need. And because of that, we do have to focus our resources on taking care of them. 
How many patients do you have here, and do you still have a waiting list? So we do have a waiting list. Um, so far, we've seen, I, I think, somewhere north of 6,000 patients in the past couple of years. Um, and, and the waiting list changes. I mean, the, the, the number of patients who are having symptoms who got COVID, I mean, that follows the waves of infections that we've seen over the past two years. So we're kind of on the tail end of the Omicron wave. Uh, depending on where you are in the country, you may be at the kind of the height of it um, still. And we, we've seen an increase in the number of patients coming through uh, due to this wave. And unfortunately, you know, if, if the past holds true for the future, you know, if there are future variants that come out and there are still persistently waves of infection, I can imagine that there will be more patients at those times as well. When a patient comes in, describes their symptoms, what do you do for them? So we model our practice very similar to a, you know, very, uh, you know, a focused primary care practice. Um, so think of us as a primary care practice, but for long-haul patients or for post-COVID patients. Um, our goal is to look at, number one, when they have symptoms, is this due to COVID? And is this something new from COVID? Or is this actually just a medical illness that they've had all along? Okay. And the goal is to make sure that we don't miss anything. Right, and that you know we're attributing this illness to COVID, but there's nothing else that's wrong with the patient. Because the worst thing you can do is miss something, because we think that everything is COVID because COVID is everywhere. And after that, we evaluate the symptoms. We do um, a good history. We do some baseline testing, and then we connect the patients to the specialist who's been working with, you know, patients on different you know symptomology that they have, in the hopes of you know, having the experience of those specialists be able to apply it to the patients coming in. Mount Sinai brings together a range of specialists to try to put together the pieces of each individual puzzle, and they're all different. They're also trying to identify new trends and patterns. There's been some research indicating that long COVID could lead to diabetes or high blood pressure or heart disease. Are you seeing those things here? So interestingly, you know, the development of like illnesses like that, I mean, one of the first things that we thought about was, you know, if you had COVID, like in the beginning of the pandemic, you know, if you had COVID, will you have like new coronary disease or will you have new onset of asthma or like, you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or things like that? You know, it's interesting because a very small proportion of patients actually have that. Now, over time, you know, when we look at these il new illnesses, I mean, first, some patients will get these illnesses over the years. I mean, that's a standard. The other thing we've seen is that the treatment for those patients who are acutely ill um, during the time that they had COVID may have changed their physiology enough that they, you know, got these illnesses. Um, I'm an endocrinologist, so I know that, you know, many patients who are very, very ill, who have been hospitalized, with COVID, I mean, sometimes they're treated with very large doses of steroids. And that, over time, can lead to diabetes. So you have to really kind of tease out, you know, what happened with the illness? Was it something that was associated with COVID? Was it something associated with the treatment of COVID? Was it something else that changed during their acute illness, whether in the hospital or at home, that could have caused this? I mean, there are a lot of factors that we have to look at. I want to ask you a big picture question. You talk about 10% of people with COVID could have helped long COVID. That's a huge number. 
what is the impact on the healthcare system, and is there the capacity to treat and help these people? Well, I think the capacity isn't there right now. I think that that's you know that's a huge issue. I mean, even if you look at let's say more conservative numbers, there's a the United Kingdom has a survey uh, for private households to self-report symptoms, and I think their report rate is like three percent of the population in the UK. And if we take three percent, let's say that conservative number, and apply it to the U.S., out of the 330 million people in the U.S., three percent is what like 10 million people total so far, and that's a humongous number. It's a humongous number, right? And, and we don't have the resources to do, you know, any of that. And and it is a burden on healthcare because what ends up happening is now you have a large amount of patients who are new, maybe some previously without medical problems, getting doctor's visits, lab testing, uh, imaging studies. I mean, all of this has a dollar amount cost tied to it. And the problem with all of that is, you know, we need to find a way to be able to meet the demand. But then we also have to find a way to fund the cost. And and that's going to be a big issue over the course of, I think, at least the next two, three years, if not longer. And I think part of what we're doing is actually helping that because, you know, there's a need to deduplicate the amount of testing that's done. Because let's say from a patient perspective, if I see one doctor and I'm not getting better, I'm going to go to the next doctor. And what's going to happen is the first doctor orders testing, the next doctor there's more testing and then more testing and in the end you come into a circle where you're really just dumping a lot of money into a diagnosis you're never going to make through the same testing so the hope is that you know when we see the patients we learn from our experience from the patients so that we learn what testing works and what doesn't work and you focus on the things that can give us some answers and then apply it to the patient so that they're not get, getting the same tests and of course, the research is going to help because that's the most important part to figure out how we diagnose and evaluate these patients differently compared to previous patients because the previous techniques are not really working. What kind of research are you doing here? So the research we're doing here is we have a big research registry. That's, I think, the biggest initiative we have currently. And the registry, what it does is it includes uh, patients we... Um, <clears throat> recruited from the hospital as well as patients that we recruited from the center and they do biobanking of samples so they take samples and they put it in a biorepository so that you know future researchers can use it we do baseline uh, questionnaires and surveys using validated surveys to see and assess how the patient is doing and we do follow-up surveys longitudinally and then we do you know very pretty standard testing and blood work but also things like spirometry because we know that you know uh, spirometry actually is different in these patients, so it's very useful to assess it, assess them. A very useful tool to assess them because it helps, you know, uh, give us one parameter on, uh, you know, how well they're performing when they're breathing. So that's a breathing test. Yeah. Yep. Um, and then and then you know we have many other research studies in the whole health system going on just for you know these long COVID patients, anywhere from specialized imaging to uh, you know other provocative testing and, you know, some treatment studies. There's just, you know, so many things we're trying to do. You talked a little before about what the Biden administration is doing. In terms of getting our arms around this, what does the government need to be doing? What does the medical system need to be doing? I think to get our arms around it, what the government can do is, I mean, number one, the easiest answer is resource, right? Providing resources, funding, 
you know, to, to, to allow us to do the research initiative we need to do. And then on top of that, I think, you know, guidance for medical systems and the medical com community about ways to kind of organize in order to kind of uh, pull our efforts in studying this illness. And then finally, um, being able to uh, clarify some of the insurance coverage that uh, is there for patients, right? You have to make resources available for the patients to be treated, to be seen. And I think one of the things that the government has done a pretty decent job at, but needs some more work is to just figure out and make sure that the reimbursement structure for you know this type of treatment is there and available so that the patients aren't you know left without resources to uh, you know see a doctor with all they're going through and all of the uncertainty they face we asked dr chen if long covid patients should have reason for hope well i think <clears throat> hope wise depending on symptoms there are improvements over time um, you know, with different management and, you know, based on symptomology, you know, there is improvement um, in the patient cohort as a whole, meaning like when we look at, you know, the patients that we have in the practice, they are feeling better and getting better as we help them manage their symptoms. Um, now, having said that, I mean, not everybody gets 100% better, unfortunately, and we're continuing efforts to look at ways to get them as close as possible. And I think that's the hope is that, you know, this isn't something we're going to abandon. This is something that we're going to study for, you know, <laughs> the next few years, if not more. And the goal is to make sure that we understand this illness so that at some point we can say, well, this is the reason. This is what's happening. This is how we get you better. Do we know how long these symptoms last and, and what's the likelihood somebody gets close to 100 percent? What are you saying? I mean, that's really hard to tell. Uh, we're only two years in. I have patients who actually have uh, been sick since, you know, 2020, and they're still not feeling well. Now, is that the, you know, the, the I, I think the, uh, not the standard, but it's just a typical patient? No, I mean, some patients are in between that and completely healing. I mean, they're in different stages of healing. So there are patients who have progressed better and faster than others. So, um, in regards to kind of percentage-wise, who's going to get 100% better? It's too hard to tell. It's too too early right now. Amazing. Well, so last time I saw you was December. Yeah. And you were still using the chair then. I was yeah. in the wheelchair. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. I came yeah. out of the wheelchair. This seems like a good time to go back to Caitlin Barber. The 29-year-old Hudson Valley woman has been fighting to get her old life back. When her symptoms resurfaced, she went back to the lesson she had learned during her first bout with long COVID. Immediately, I started with the interventions like compression stockings, high salt, high fluid, um, breath work, um, physical therapy. And right away when my pots got out of control, I started the interventions that Mount Sinai has used the first time that this happened. And they are effective, you know, but uh, there's a huge question in my mind of, you know, will this be the rest of my life or not? How do you, how do you process that? Well, that's a part of the whole, um, you know, it, 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 it is not just physically draining, it is mentally um, probably the hardest thing that I've ever been through because it's such a roller coaster. You know, I was doing great. I was, I had my spirits were so high, I was doing great. And then, you know, things happen and things happen in life and any kind of stressor or trigger will cause a pot flare for me. So, um, yeah, like I said, it's, it's, it's difficult. 
definitely to say the least and and you know having to give up our apartment um was not an easy decision um but at the end of the day we have to do what's best for my health have you have you been part of any kind of uh long COVID support groups or anything like that yes absolutely i'm in many um including survivor corps um and i try to help as many people as possible too by you know, some people reach out to me and I, I give them, you know, the resources that I have, including Survivor Corps, because it's such an amazing um, environment and support group for somebody like me. Um, and so that really helped, too. And I have a therapist, which um, helps me get through the physical and emotional battles of pop. In terms of Survivor Corps and the support groups, what exactly, what does that do for you? Well, you know... It's it's a it's I think it's probably up to two hundred thousand people right now that are um, you know suffering and that's not that's not even close to the number of people that are suffering from long COVID. I just want to make that clear. But in the support group, um, you know, people people talk about what they're experiencing. Um, there are people just like me that have gotten sick two years ago and that are still battling this. And I think it's really important to know that you know for many this might be a slight cold, but for many it's not. What is the message for people who are still struggling? What, what do you say to people who think, oh, my goodness, how do I deal with this? Well, you know, the way I try to look at it is um, we are now two years into this pandemic, and there are so many resources available from when I was sick. You know, when I was sick, there wasn't res- there weren't really any resources, and now there are so many. I mean, there are long covid centers popping up all across the country there are um you know doctors are starting to really they're not we're not even close to understanding you know long covid and and all of that but we're starting to to get a grasp on it and i think that that's important because there are literally millions of people out there that are suffering from long covid and um i think the resources available including mount sinai and any post-covid center um you know getting the mental health um help that you need and um, there are so many resources out there and that's that's the part that makes me feel better about everyone else who you know is just maybe is just starting this journey Katie you've been so kind to share your story I mean it just sounds so difficult and I I again appreciate that the fact that you're willing to do this so thank you absolutely absolutely you know I I um I don't want my struggles to, um, you know, be private. I think that this is, this is life with long COVID and I think that people need to know. And if I can help one person out there, then this, everything will be worth it. Barbara talked about Survivor Corps. What started as a Facebook support group has morphed into something much larger. It's now a full-blown grassroots advocacy group that serves as a clearinghouse for post-COVID questions and research. You can find it online at SurvivorCore.com. That's it for 880 In-Depth this week. The executive producers are Tim Scheld and Peter Haskell. Thanks to our guests, Caitlin Barber and Dr. Zhijian Chen. 880 In-Depth gives us a chance to focus on an important issue in our community. We've talked about long COVID before, and we'll do so again. 
You can find us at WCBS880.com, the Odyssey app, or wherever you get your audio. And please subscribe. I'm Michael Wallace. Thanks for listening, and be safe. swing nba playoffs are heating up and your nfl team is gearing up for training camp listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the odyssey app the biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app 